Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we talk to the editors of Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Those editors are, alphabetically, Nicholas Detoff, ACE, Kelly Dixon, ACE, and Josh Earle. Nicholas Detoff has been a previous Art of the Cut guest for his film Gunpowder Milkshake. His other work includes Hitman Agent 47, Gulliver's Travels, X-Men Origins Wolverine, and Live Free or Die Hard, among others. He also edited the pilot of the Hawaii Five-O reboot. Kelly Dixon has also been a guest several times on Art of the Cut, including for her work on the film The Goldfinch and for her work on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Kelly's other work includes the TV series The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, The Passage, Castle Rock, Preacher, and Halt and Catch Fire. Kelly has won or been nominated for numerous Emmys and Ace Eddies. Josh Earl was brought onto the project as a first assistant editor to Kelly Dixon and eventually co-edited the final episode of Obi-Wan. His previous editorial work includes the feature film Shepard and TV series including Race to the Center of the Earth, Bering Sea Gold, Around the World in 80 Ways, and Deadliest Catch, for which he has won numerous Emmys and an Ace Eddie. Before we hop into our discussion with them, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you are physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To hear how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com AOTC. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go also to borisfx.com AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now my discussion with Kelly Dixon, ACE, Nicholas Detoff, ACE, and Josh Earle. What are the benefits and drawbacks of cutting a TV series where the show length isn't critical? Like, Kelly, you've worked on Breaking Bad. I'm assuming those things had to be a specific length because they were on broadcast TV. And now you've got minutes to play with. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
it's always a good thing because <laughs> yeah, we're not limited in any kind of way. And then when we finally decide on, Hey, this is a lock show. It can be a lock show. We're not going through trying to make a time pass. So it's really, really great. Also with, with something of this size, tell me a little bit about managing the cutting room. There are a lot of people that are VFX editors and music editors and assistants and all that kind of stuff. How much are you having to manage the other people that are around you and how much are you being managed? Well, I think we were pretty segmented in the end. We were very compartmentalized while interacting with each other. So we had stewardship over our episodes, but then we had a great team supporting us across borders, so to speak. There were no borders and there was no such segregation, but Kelly had her workload. I had my workload and then we check it out and in general, it was a pretty fluid and great team, I think. We had some really good support, and it worked like a well-oiled machine. There was the monster, which was a visual effects entity, which kind of was over everything. You know, Kel, Josh, and I did our stuff, and then we'd meet in the, in the kitchen and uh, discuss the vicissitudes of editing our episodes, and then we'd sit in each other's room and watch the shows together. And yeah, it was a, it was a really good situation, I think. It was not unlike a feature in the sense that the story of it all was, you know, linear. It wasn't episodic. So that was great. And there was continuity and through flow. And there was a good flow from episode to episode. It didn't feel like vastly different editing styles or ideologies when it came to character arcs and story and everything. So it was a really good situation. How much of that do you actually have to manage as editors and how much of you are like, that's a post-producer, that's the assistant editors, that's something else? Josh would be a great person to, to answer this because he wore a couple different hats. What's weird is Nick and I were texting about this. It's a great team and almost naturally fit together nicely. Early on when Cal called, she was like, hey, do you possibly <laughs> want to come work on a Star Wars and come on as my first assist? And then you play with some Star Wars stuff. And before she even finished the sentence, I think it was like, yeah, whatever. What are we doing? When is it? Like tomorrow? What's it? No, start of the next year. We'll do it. I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's go play. Jumping into it, I talked to Nick's first, Ken Terry, who's just amazing, by the way. And he was like, I think we're going to get along nicely because he's really good at running that room. He's really good at running the communication between the DI, between the mix, all that stuff. What was great was... Wait, let me mention, though, for... Yeah. I think Josh is, is getting a little ahead on this. Nah. Josh is, a, is an established editor on his own. Josh is a five-time Emmy winner. He and I have known each other for several years. We've never worked together. We worked in very different genres of, of the business. And so Josh is an editor that I was basically asking, hey, <laughs> do you mind stepping down, being an assistant and coming? But Josh was like, is it Star Wars? Yes. Okay. So just adding <laughs> yeah. that adjunct to catch people up. So that Go yeah, ahead, that, that's definitely part of it. And I don't know. I've always been a fan of, listen, what we get to do is pretty insane. Regardless, we are paid to tell stories. So as long as I'm having fun, I don't care what the job is. And especially if the team is good. So after that first two weeks, wow, we have something special here because I feel like everyone's talking really well. We had lunches together, made sure that we we're communicating as much as possible. If there was any issues that are, would arise, we'd work as a team. I worked closely with Ken to make sure we were on the right path because Ken's been doing it long enough where he could take over any weird technical thing that might come up that I might not catch from like a feature perspective. And I think that's where there's a perfect symbiosis because Ken is a very technical delivery ingestion 
output cross-contamination individual. I mean, he's literally can do it with his eyes closed and he's done it on, you name it, like the huge movies he's worked on them. And so in that respect, as an assistant, he's very technical. Josh brought a very artistic, you know, all of his editing experience to it. So he was incredibly instrumental in, in, in the episodes. And so Josh brought editor sensibility to it. But when it came to the conduit of getting things to and from and coordinating, Ken handled that part of it. And Josh brought in a whole different aspect of it. So they were really well suited. I think that's why it was a good collaboration in that respect. Steve Ree was heading up the effects so editing. Effects. We had uh, Joya Caruso, who was the second, and she was a first that came on to be a second. We had this crazy awesome team that was yeah. talking to one another. If something was wrong, we would all just get together and figure it out, you know? And last but not least, Nick Fitzgerald, the oh, music God. editor, who yeah. basically, he was so instrumental in shaping the score and influencing the way the score was made. And he definitely needs props there because yeah. he worked tirelessly and endlessly. And we had an issue with, we, we were going to have one composer, but the composer would, fell ill and couldn't come in. So at the last minute, we had to get a different composer. And so this person had to do a lot of catch up and it's incredibly difficult to catch a tone and the music of this, of Obi, and then feeling it, trying to keep it respectful of the original score while still trying to infuse some element of contemporary and modern aesthetics to it without breaking it, because we all know and love the original Star Wars themes. But to Josh's point, we had an incredible team. Amazing team, all talking together. Yeah. We even had post-vis yeah. at one point. We had, Dev actually had them in yeah, house, which floor. was awesome. Especially now it's not as common to have them right with you. Usually they're an email away, but to have them right there and be able to jump over and go, Hey guys, go talk to them, have them set up this shot just like this. I'll be over to talk later and we'll figure it out. And so they could hash something out, walk over and say, what do you think guys? Is this what we want? And then we could say, yes, no, tweak it like this, make it this much bigger, make it that much smaller, do whatever right in the room and yeah. they could knock it out and shoot it back to us. Josh is a really great liaison because he's got the creative down and he had to liaison with all the departments as a creative, not just as a technical. And he was nervous to be an assistant because he hadn't done it for years. But I'm like, Josh, I I'm not nervous about anything because I know that you've been doing this stuff on your projects by yourself for so long. I I'm not worried about this at all. It's interesting that this hierarchy or the way that you step from assistant to editor is to have what is really a very different skill set. That's a whole conversation is the ascension of editors and assistants is it's really problematic because, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of get pigeonholed. The people who don't know about production think that assistant director leads to ed to directing when in fact it leads to producing. And it's yeah. the same, it's almost the same thing. An assistant editor almost leads to post supervisor than it does more so than it does to editor. Not completely, but skill set and the workload, unless you are actively promoted and actively encouraged to edit by your editor, it's really difficult and increasingly more so, I think. You know, to, yeah. because yeah, there's also perception, there's the stigma, you know, oh, you're an assistant. Yeah. I'm working on something now where people who ascended to editor are still seen as assistants. And so they're editors, but they're like, yeah, yeah, you're still the kid. And it's really hard to shed that as an assistant, I think. And it's a tough place to come from. 
because of Joya and Ken, I was able to do that jump back. If I'm doing a project at home, I have to do a lot of it, but I do it my way. And it's, there's the Lucasfilm way, there's the Disney way, there's the Fox way, the universal way. You relearn it everywhere you go anyway. And they reiterated that as I was doing it, but I was never intending to walk into someone and go, no, I, I could just do this. I'm not, I don't need any help or anything. I've always said to tell a lot of people, if I'm working with you, always ask me questions. I'm not going to get mad at you for asking questions. I'm going to get mad when you don't. And then something gets screwed up. And so I instantly went in and was like, I've got all of the questions and find out that a lot of the stuff I had already been doing is very similar. I was on a show where I was supervising producer, supervising editor, and my own assistant. And they were like, here's the deliverables for a Lionsgate feature. And I was like, I don't even think I have any of these things. And you just got to know to talk through those elements. One of the big reasons why we can claim this win is Deb, because she was the through line. And ultimately, for me, this is familiar territory. This was a common vision from start to finish across the board for music, for sound effects, for visual effects, for everything. And so... In that respect, that made our lives a whole lot easier when it came to that. She was incredibly accessible, incredibly collaborative, and present. So that made it a lot easier, because if there ever was a question, she was there. Kel, that would be a great place for you to chime in, because you've worked on TV series where you've had multiple directors. Talk about having the benefits of one person through multiple episodes. In my experience, yes, I may have worked on TV shows that had multiple directors, but the biggest TV shows that I worked on were Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and they had singular visions from the showrunner aspect. So that was a little bit different. And those directors also answered to the showrunner. And I think I understand your question, but I don't think I'm probably the best person to answer it that way because in television, you do have a showrunner aspect. So the thing about this show, even though it was run, I would say as like hybrid TV feature sort of thing, our showrunner pretty much was Deborah Chow. <laughs> Deborah Chow was the director, but she was always also a showrunner. And I hope I'm not overstepping by saying that's my interpretation of it. But I think that every show is different. And I think that working with multiple directors is an advantage, definitely, because I get to see a lot of different styles. I like this because just like Nick was saying, Deb pretty much had worked out all the answers already. So if we had questions about anything, we could just ask her and she responded. I think that a lot more are going to be done like that. We're already seeing the hybridization of a lot of shows, especially in the streaming world that are being done like that. I think that writer producers are realizing that they can tell a better story in eight hours than they can in two. I worked on the show for, I think, a year and two weeks. That was like the total time. We shot from April through the end of August. And then we didn't lock the last episode until sometime around the middle of April, I believe. So that's a long time. And most episodic stuff, you don't get that long. I mean, I think on a longer year of Breaking Bad or Saul, I think we worked maybe 33 weeks total. And on this, we worked 55, something like that. Mm -hmm. Was it block shot more like a feature where you're getting little pieces of your episodes? Not on the whole. I think in some instances they did. I think towards the end, Nick, I believe we're block shooting maybe five episode five and six sometimes. For the most part, they tried to do it episodically. But here's the thing. The reason that they did that, I think, was because they didn't really need to shoot at locations. When they did need to shoot a location, they did block shoot. But for the most part, 
if you look at the episodes themselves, they are very in, enclosed in themselves. Not to get too technical because I'm going to fail on this, but we were also shooting on the volume, you know, and people who have watched The Mandalorian and watched the behind the scenes, it's this new technology where they can shoot on a soundstage, but it's almost, what, three quarters of a round enclosed with projected background. That was advantageous to us, but it just, it made it so our visual effects team especially could get stuff ready. They had to prep as well to get those backgrounds ready. So there was really no need for us to block shoot that show. I will say that all the stuff that was done in the beginning on Tatooine and then ending on Tatooine, that kind of stuff was block shot. Are there advantages in editorial for shooting on something like the volume? The minute it came in, my my eyes melted. There were scenes where it was like, we just got to do touch up on these. It's a lot. Yeah, like the Ginza Ginza District, the Ginza District, the Blade Runner shots. It looked gorgeous for a rough cut because sure, VFX is going to stab me for saying we just have to do touch ups, but I'm sure there was a ton that had to be done. But for a rough cut, you don't have to imagine maybe this is what happens. There's movies that come out now where they show pre-vis and post-vis that looks super rudimentary where you're like, okay, I just got to get past this. I just got to, I got a picture that the spaceship's going to come in. We just had it come in. It was crazy. (laughs) Just fly in and it was on the volume. I'll say also our first, I wasn't there when Nick started. I started about two weeks later, but when Josh and I were together and we first went on the volume, we were just Uh. like, yeah, silence. I mean, our, <laughs> and then we were like, I can't see where it ends. Where does it yeah. end? Oh my God. Yeah, the seam. Yeah. yeah. Where the stage it's, met the horizon the, was really the good. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and when we saw it, even the big gigantic stage door was open, like the big yeah. gigantic door. And so there was a lot of light coming in, but we still, it was really hard when you stared across the soundstage out and you're like where does it this is so cool and there were definitely with josh because he's such a star wars fan that whenever like we were in some new they had changed the stage to the ending of episode four where it's that big landing platform and you would walk on there and you're like all of a sudden you're on that hangar and there's big spaceships that are right there and they're just projected. It's yeah. like pretty amazing. Vader's Vader's <laughs> throne room. When we I, mean, I think we all went for Vader's throne room, right? Like we went as a group yeah. just because that was yeah, like, no, but like we all have to be there for the Vader throne room. That's gonna happen. Yeah. Just from the atmospheric experience of it, but also from editorially, it's it really helps with the flow of the cuts and it helps you understand. When you're working with a blue screen and the whole world has to be created on that blue screen, it does impact the way you cut it because Mm -hmm. eventually what you get back from visual effects will impact the cuts. When you have that already there for you, it makes your job easier in that respect. Mm -hmm. Things will change ever so slightly, but it's not to the extent that you get when you're doing with blue screen or green screens. Mm -hmm. When you have something, even with a rough comp, with Avid and whatever, all editing software now, you can do a fairly believable comp. Nevertheless, it doesn't have the same integration and it does, and it impacts the cut in a different manner. And so when you look at that and it's already realized, I'd say at 80% of what it will be, as opposed to 60%, it makes a big difference in how you cut it. Yeah. And one of the things that I'll say that is really not necessarily about the volume, but it was something editorially that I learned on this project is we could take the big fight, they're fighting and they might be fighting in full screen 
And Deborah would say, shrink those down, shrink them down and put them in this one small yeah. corner. And I started to understand that the rest of the world is going to be built anyway. So we can take this one shot that she shot that might be a medium shot and we can now make it this massive wide shot with a big world and that's one thing that you can do with these things that's exactly what i was going to say where literally they gave us so much to play with they gave us such a huge sandbox that it's a rare and it's a privilege to work on movies of this scope or projects of this scope where you are given you want it this way? Fine. You want to split them? Fine. You want to take the head from this take and the body from that, that take? No problem. And all that costs money, but that the budget on this was, you know, of the nature that it permitted that. So it allows you so much freedom. And as as is witnessed, especially in six, I mean that that fight was created in the cutting room, really. It really was. I and I love the exact point that you made, which was cutting out to the big wide shots was so awesome. Talk to me about that decision and how that works editorially because like multiple times you cut to the a very wide angle of the fight. Uh, we did it a couple times. We did it at the top, but I think you also did it at Vader's Mask. Anytime you can, it really helped, one, the scope of what's going on because that, that barren moon, I think was the name of the actual planet they were on. It brought something to the transitions as well. Because one of the things you were working on toward the end there, even Kyle, was that the transition that we had between Riva and the fight. That was a totally created transition. And Deb is like, does she ever like do something with that box? No, but maybe if he throws it down the stairs, we could cut her. Let's see. Deb was like, can you find a shot where she does this? And so I did. And then we created that box being sliced through. I guess what I want to say is, it taught me a different way of thinking, which is always yeah. great because it's you're growing. And I may never use it, but it I think it will box. be something that I'll always exactly take with me to say, oh, we can do this. Cutting to the wides is something you don't always have the opportunity to do because of what you're watching. In this situation, lightsabers are epic in a wide shot. A lightsaber fight in a dark world is beautiful. The red and the blue, it's fantastic. And so it's pretty rare that you have the opportunity. We did in, we did in five with Vader pulling down the ship. You guys do it with a fight. And then so the sword fight in three, because those two elements in the scope, it gives you scope, it gives you stuff. But if two people were in a fisticuff, unless it's really planned for that or silhouetted and visually entice, enticing, there's really no reason to cut wide because there's no visual appeal to that. And then it just puts you out of it for no reason. So in this situation, we have lightsabers to thank for that as well. And that's a perfect vehicle for that. And I'll even say the po that's another reason post-vis was crucial in-house for when we mm -hmm. had it, because we'd knock out a shot for us just to see if it would work. And they would have something ready in a day. But they, but that's what was great about post -vis. That process was like, we didn't have rocks behind Obi-Wan lifting those rocks for the longest time because I didn't want to take that time. I know you didn't want to take that time, Kel. And then they, in a day, knocked out, you know, it was a rudimentary version of it, but you're like, oh, this, this might be awesome. It gets the point across and everyone was really good at going, all right, I see what you're going for. The intercutting that was in, I can't remember which episode, but Anakin and Obi-Wan. In five. Yeah, in five, is episode. it? Yeah. And so that was intercut throughout the whole episode. Was that scripted or did you find you needed to break it in different ways to be able to serve the story better? No, that was pretty much scripted. The only places we moved it around slightly, we made structural moves, Deb and I, on trying to find strategic places for this because there was one concern that it was a fine line between this being entirely Obi's recollection 
or an altruistic perception of it, like basically like an omniscient vision that we're privy to this memory, but we're not sure whose it is. Because in the end, the Anakin loses. And so we have to make, it's a very fine line. And we had to tread a, like the razor's edge to make sure that it doesn't read like, why doesn't Vader know this? Because he lived it as well. So it was a fine line. It was a bit of a sleight of hand to try to play this. And Deb and I played, placed in different places. We, we tried different placements, but we really, and Deb really wanted this to be a chess game. It was scripted slightly differently where it didn't always transition from flashback to protagonist. Sometimes it would transition from flashback to a secondary character or an establishing shot. And Deb was very conscientious and very, she was very adamant that she wanted to transition from one to the other. So it, I think if I remember correctly, in every case, it transitions in and out of flashback from either Obi or Anakin so that we tie it together. And she really wanted this to be this chess match between the two of them. How do you even maintain the understanding of where you are in the fight? Is it that scripted? Do you have some kind of assistant of stunt viz or something to let you know how this works? I'll try and be really quick because I will say that Josh and I worked on that together. And the reason is because it was so massive and I had so much of the other episode to work on that I was like, hey, I'm going to do some of this. I said at the time we were trying, it's a six episode we're trying to get this stuff done so it can be viewed in case there's any pickups to be had. But the first thing I'll say is that Deborah Chow had, they had choreographed this thing the whole way through. It is massively choreographed and it's done in sections. It's done in absolute sections. I can't, I don't remember it well enough, but if I saw it, I could tell you, okay, from there to there, from there to there, from there to there. Basically what was happening was at that point, I was working on finishing episode four, which had its own massive amount of fight scenes. And I was working on episode six with a lot of the suspense and the drama of episode six. There's a lot, and there's a lot of drama towards the end of it. So it was really a lot. So I told Josh, hey man, do you mind? I knew he didn't mind, but I'm like, hey man, do you mind cutting, cutting? Yeah, cutting? didn't mind can, at can all. Can you cut? No, but basically <laughs> I said, hey, can you cut the beginning when Vader lands and they start? Can you cut the beginning? I will take the second half. And I actually think that I roughed out the whole thing, I think. And Josh cut, Josh definitely took the beginning because I never touched the beginning of it. And then once we actually started working with Deborah Chow, she said, hey, do you mind? And this was actually, I was actually really glad about this because our whole planner was to get Deborah to feel comfortable with Josh, not as an assistant editor, but actually as an editor. And by then she did. So I said, hey, you're getting three editors for the price of two and a half. This is, this is a good thing. And of course, I wanted Josh to have half a credit. And all of that is, is there's a very political decisions to be worked out on that kind of thing. So I said, hey, she came to me and she said, hey, we're in a grind where we're trying to get all this stuff done. And do you mind if Josh takes over on the fight. And I said, no, I've actually done quite a bit of work on it. And I trust Josh with any anything. So Josh took over. So Josh, you can add a little bit more to working on that fight. There is stunt fizz. And we originally looked at it when we were laying stuff out because I grabbed the opening and then that second part with the rock pillar crushing because there were a ton of sections that now are like 
I think five main sections or maybe even four main sections of the fight, but it, it was challenging, but also, man, was it fun to sit and just go through Deb would have her, let's try this or try that. How are we feeling about this section? Maybe we lose it. And then there's parts that had to be merged. So there was, yeah. there's seamless sections in there that took time to really go, all right, this wasn't meant to go together. How do we do that? And then there's sections where it was like, God, this fighting is so cool because it, every angle of that fight had something going on. Yeah. And there were like probably at least three cameras every single time yeah. on that and, fight. At and least. it was the overhead shot was able to be made into an overhead shot. Like it wasn't just the crane anymore. We could push out. And now we were watching these lightsabers on this, the barren moon sw swirling around when we wanted to. So it was a matter of mixing what was intended and then blowing that apart. Cause I know Deb really, we did a cut of everything. Like, here's what it, here's what stunt is. And here's our little tweaks to it. There was times where she was just like, what if we extended this? What if we did this or merge those ideas? And that part to me was really fun. I've seen reaction videos, the episode people, whenever would cut away, they'd be like the fight. What, what are we watching? It? But it's it, I think it actually, balanced it really nicely to go and see this other menacing dark chase that was happening yeah and a lot of those pieces where we would cut away they were all scripted but they weren't scripted mm -hmm. in the places where we cut to them so yeah. a lot of that work was how can we do this restructure but we can't upset the delicate balance of what is happening in the other part yeah. where reva is questioning her own motivations the thing that we had to get across was who's winning at what time, you know, it can't just be back and forth. It was more like, all right, how do we make it so people understand this guy's confident? <laughs> like Vader's holding a rock the size of a three-story building and having a discussion while Obi-Wan's trying his hardest to, to crush him and he's doing everything he can. But then by the end, like with the section with Kel, where it's like, he lifts up all those rocks and then just destroys Vader with them up against the wall. That's sort of the arc that had to be followed was who's winning now, who's winning here. Here's the clear vision of how this fight plays. And that was the challenge toward the end of it was making it sing that way. So I'm assuming that those separate parts of the fight are probably separate bins or even those separate five categories also were separate bins. I want to tell you, and this is a much longer discussion, I know we don't have the time, but I will tell you that I'm always going through sort of a learning renaissance on a show, especially like this. These fight scenes are the biggest things that I've ever done as far as like the amount of footage for something like that. And it started in episode four, and I basically learned how my mind works and how I need to approach this stuff and this is fully avid technical doing the deep dive, but I basically had to learn how to organize according to what I needed to see and what I could put my hands on fast. And I don't remember as much about the final fight, but I can tell you that in episode four, we have two much shorter lightsaber scenes where basically they're going down a hallway from point A to point B. And the way that I would organize was if I'm going from South to North, Obi-Wan is traveling from South to North. I need to see what is going forward and what is going backward. And that is how I organize my bins. For me, it was more like, what do I want to see and how do I put my hands on it as quickly as possible? And so I would organize my bins like that. I have a similar approach. There are also specific anchors in the stunt viz and the stunt coordination, there are certain moments that are like bellwether moments. There's one particular stunt, which wire pull or something like that. And there's events that are kind of like milestones in the fight. And so I'll usually break it down into those milestones. So this is everything leading up to the, the, the super punch, which is a, a wire pull. So everything leading up to that moment will usually live in one 
organized fashion, which is similar to Kelly's. And so yeah. looking this way, looking that way, favoring this character, favoring that character, but then it ends. And then there's like a slight overlap. And then because stunt viz won't shoot the whole fight together, stunt, mm -hmm. stunts won't shoot the whole fight together, obviously. We'll break it down into events. And so I try to break it down to those specific events. And so in that respect, it's similar to that. But there, there's always very defining moments in the stunt when they shoot it, that there's no coverage past this point. Yeah. So yeah. that ends here. And so <laughs> everything goes in the bin for that coverage to that point. And then even though they're shooting on the same day, they'll start a whole new thing, which is part two of the, of the fight or part three, part two of 20, whatever. And so it's important to keep that in mind as Sometimes, well. Sometimes I think, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, some of those things too, because we had it in stages. And what I would do is I would do it just like Nick. And then when that stage was done, like I'd color the bin like blue. And I'm yeah. like, okay, I know everything that I want to have is in that bin. And yeah. it's on, I work on one giant screen. So this is my screen right here. Everything that's blue. Okay, we're done with that. Bam, it's out of there. I don't need to look for it anymore. Now I'm looking yeah. for the green bin or now I'm looking for the pink bin. For the hangar and four, I did separate bins for the direction the volume was shot. This is looking at the door of the hangar and this is looking at the exterior of the hangar. So that was another layer I used on the hangar part of it. But yeah, Kel, we definitely used... We had tons color. of color coordination that, yeah. that helped it. And then also just, yeah, it was location in the bin too. We tried to mimic that. The other thing too, that I want to say for assistants that are listening to this, I was asked by our second assistant, Joya Caruso, at one point, because she saw how I was changing the bins. And, you know, of course, being a, a, an assistant and she's conscientious, she's like, how can I help you? And I'm like, don't worry about it. You can't. I have to digest this footage and I have to understand. Josh is an editor. Nick is an editor. But we have all different ways of how our mind is going to be able to access this footage. And the key, I think for me, I'm not going to speak for them, but for me, it's I need to be able to cut it. So I need to find where things are. But I also need, need to be able to put my hands on anything very quickly when a director asked me for something that I didn't use that shot. But where is it? You know, and my next question to Deborah Chow would have been, do you remember which way was he pointing? You know, because then I can go to those sections and and check. So for assistance out there, look, I don't want to speak for all editors, but for me, I need to be able to look at this stuff and figure out my own way of putting it together. That's not on that's not their responsibility. As a teaching moment, if your assistant is trying to learn to be an editor, then you can basically show them what your process is. And you can say, here's how I think about it. You need to come up with your own way of thinking. You're more than welcome to take this way, but you need to come up with your own way of thinking about of it because that's the objective. You have to be able to put your hands on it very quickly. Absolutely. But that's interesting that you say that because that's exactly what you, your point of assistance learning to edit and think like an editor that's exactly why I encourage them to organize the bins for me, or at least like the beginning of it, because I have them organize it for me in a chronological way, but per coverage, sometimes it gets confusing because some coverage overlaps and everything. And this is where you have to think as an editor, it's like, where would you mm -hmm. go next? And how would this flow within the context of the scene? And so when I asked them to organize it, I said, don't just put it in by close-ups and wide shots, because that doesn't matter. You need to watch it and you need to mm -hmm. know it. And as yeah. an assistant, you will know the film better than anybody. 
And you will also think as an editor, and that allows you to cut stuff because that's the other thing is I always tell them, cut anything you want, anytime you want, because there is no restriction to this. When I started in film, you couldn't do that. Now yeah. you can take any scene, scenes up. Yeah, it's sacrosanct. You cut the film, you're like, you're, you're breaking the play and this is impossible. Yeah. Don't touch the film. But now you can cut and recut any scene that I've cut, scenes that I haven't cut. It doesn't matter. Cut it, cut it. And so when you organize the bin in a specific way, which is chronological, but also coherent to the, the character's journey and, and, you know, and think of it how you cover it, uh, I think it, I think it's very informative for an assistant. 100%. Let's talk about music and sound effects a little bit and how those created a world for you. I got to give kudos to Josh because he did some yeah. fantastic sound. Yeah. yeah. Do so. Josh, when I first uh, was talking to Josh about taking this job, I said, yeah, man, you're going to do a whole lot of sound effects of lightsaber battles. And Josh was like, oh, really? Really? The problem like, I'm glad I, you're excited, man. Let me just interject this. My family and I were living in Berlin. And so I came out alone to LA for a year to do the show. The length of my tenure on Obi-Wan was pretty much spent alone. Therefore, I would come in really early. And I often came in, I'd say half the time I would be, or say 40% of the time I'd come in first. 60% of the time I'd come into the sound effects emanating from Josh's room. <laughs> zoom, zoom, zoom. Josh was on it. And so, so I have much, to say, so it, was, much fun. it was, yeah, it was great. It was so Josh, talk about I, the sound. Those guys are the early people. I'm the one who comes in at like 10 and I'll stay till 10. And those guys come in at seven or eight and stay. So I'm the later one. I come in, stay late. It's like when no one's around, well, Nick was around, so we were around, but it was when it's just, you can just zone in on it, but also I could just turn it up and maybe my door didn't have to be all the way closed. So it would just be, I'd be jamming to it, but I had, I come from a world where like with the unscripted stuff, when I did Deadliest Catch back in the day and did all these things, I'd work with a composer. They would make music that I could then edit into the show or had to be construct something I could construct. And that's kind of where my world was. It was like, we didn't have music editors. We don't have, we have sound design at the end, but you have to do a lot of your own. You have to do all that stuff on your own to make sure your show looks good so that it doesn't get kicked back. And I've always really loved that. And so being able to do it for Star Wars, that was a whole, because Kel was like, it's gonna be a lot of sound design. You're gonna do a lot of stupid, like uh, things that- I didn't say stupid. stupid. She didn't say stupid. <laughs> oh, whoa, hey, Lucasfilm, she didn't say stupid. Whoa, whoa, wait. wait. But it was like you're gonna do you a lot. brilliant, <laughs> yeah, brilliant sound effects. Yeah, but you know, it's like it, it can become tedious if you're on something and you have to do a certain amount of stuff. And yeah. there's a tedious amount of lightsaber noises. But man, did I have fun! Now I didn't love when we cut something and then all my sound effects went that way, and then I had to figure out how to get them back this way. Yeah. That was a whole other thing. But the, but doing it was awesome, and I really enjoyed doing the early because we didn't have Nick Fitzgerald for a little while, so I he was our music editor he was our For music editor yeah two, two and four i got through a lot of the stuff and nick and i talked music as much as we could we're just like i don't know oh, yeah we were by the yeah, way we was... were not we couldn't use star wars music yeah. we, we, we were we, not well, the, uh, yeah. went that way we just things, dug yeah. yeah this is one of the things that i spoke with deb a, a lot even before even coming to la like in 2019 or 2020 2020 2020 like october 2020 one of the first things, one of the first topics she and I raised was music and what a puzzle this was going to be because it is crucial to the show, but she wanted it to be not the same, but the same. So being different, but modern. 
not offending the fans, which is almost impossible, especially with the music because the themes are so iconic and, and everybody loves them. Keeping the essence of those while reinventing, but also we have to remember that this takes place between two very well-known entities, episode three and episode four of the movies. So we can't introduce something that's completely different unless they're new characters, but we can't also go back to that because there's something about those scores when you listen to them as much as you love them the aesthetics are slightly different than, than they are today. And so I think if those movies were made today, the themes may exist, the orchestration, everything might be different because it, it's evolved, it's changed in a way, not for better or for worse, but it's just different. The sensibilities are different today than they were when those movies were first made. I mean, it's so crucial to, the, to everything. The right yeah. music just makes it amazing. And, and music editors are super important. That's the one thing that I will say, being fortunate enough to work on things with a little bit bigger budget, they'll hire a music editor. And the one thing I will say is that, you know, a lot of productions, especially in streaming, they expect music to be just absolutely done at the editor's cut stage. They expect this. They're indignant when oh, yeah. it's not done. And that doesn't happen at the higher stages, but at the, in, in streaming and in television, basically TV, they expect that. And, but they don't want to spend the money on a music editor. And I don't think a lot of producers understand how absolutely vital a music editor is. Music editors know obscure scores, like the back of their hand. They know all this stuff. They, because it's always that, they don't want, producers do not, producers, directors, all the people that you work for do not want to hear music from th something that they know. It can't be something that they know. So it's got to be something that they haven't heard and it's got to be right. And a lot of time for TV, it can't be big. Music editors are very vital, but they expect us as editors to actually be carrying this encyclopedia. And God bless all these people that can. I admittedly do not have whole scores in my head ready to be on tap. But joking with friends of mine, I'm like, I have this producer that's looking for another editor. And hey, I know a friend who's an editor. They would love to move into scripted. Oh, really? What have they done? Oh, they've been a music editor. Oh, why on earth would I hire that person who's never cut, but has been a music editor? But I'm like, but you're expecting me to do their job wait a minute, you're expecting me to be that music editor, but yet you won't give that music editor a chance. And it's, they are incredibly vital. And I've been on stuff where we have several music editors. It's not just one, we have several of them. Right now I'm working on something where we have three of them. It's like music editors are very vital. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. But Josh I, is a I, great one. Josh is a great one. Oh. Josh did a great job. I, I remember fun, but on, I also uh, got on... to use Nick's insane library. Nick DeTuth's library is oh. ridiculous. Yeah, your library. <laughs> then i was like oh well because i brought in i brought in some of those weird obscure things like think uh, uh fright night and and uh, you know some of those weird ones that we were using early on and then i was like went through nick's hey man, older that's ones. not weird fright night, nah, that's not weird that's that's a really good score stop i man. love are totally. you kidding me that I, I love all the that I weird, used most of it <laughs> i used to most, yeah. most of it was fright oddly enough temp scored a lot of Fright Night, um, but Nick had yeah. this this library, so I was able to kind of go, "Ooh, what do we got in here?" Yeah. So, uh, and that was the Ramin Fright Night, not the old school Fright right. Night, like the newer right. Fright Night. Now, fifteen years, yeah, yeah. fifteen uh, years of music and and sound. Yeah. But music editors, I think, are on song heroes for sure. I mean, I remember on Die Hard, Marco Beltrami was a great composer, was limited to a certain amount of time to edit to put something together, so he scored it. But then we reshot the whole ending of the movie. 
which he hadn't scored. And Alex Gibson, the music editor, who was also his music editor, happens to be dual to a role, basically with Marco knowing already, they had a plan. They shot, they did a lot of stems, they did a lot of separation so that Alex Gibson just came in and recut and, and basically created the score for the end of the movie. In the end, he's the only music editor ever to win a, an Oscar. I think he won it for Dunkirk, I think. Uh, Kelly and Nicholas and Josh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for cutting a great series. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Pleasure. Thank you for asking Thanks for watching. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, the new online home of Art of the Cut, where there's tons of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to our guests, Nicholas Detoth, ACE, Kelly Dixon, ACE, and Josh Earl. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast, and thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out their offers at jumpdesktop.com cut and borisfx.com AOTC. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. Thank you.